Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Recent Discoveries in Mormonism. Now, when I say recent discoveries in Mormonism, I'm talking about discoveries that I have made personally in the last several days. A number of these have to do with questions that I have had for years and even decades that have serendipitously been answered while I have been studying, preparing for other things. I thought about calling this episode on finding things not looked for, but that sounded really inscrutable. So I decided to call it Recent Discoveries in Mormonism. They are four in number, and I want to talk about each of those four this evening. Each one of them by itself would probably not be long enough for a podcast, but combining all four together, I think will definitely do the trick. I hope you are as interested in these discoveries that I have made recently as I am to have made them and to be telling you about them. So let's start at the top, shall we? The very first discovery has to do with Joseph F. Smith. The second discovery has to do with Joseph F. Smith as well. The third discovery involves President Russell M. Nelson, who just turned 98 years old. Congratulations and happy birthday to you, President Nelson. And the fourth discovery will have to do with President Wilford Woodruff. But let's go to this first discovery regarding Joseph F. Smith. Now, Joseph F. Smith gave a very significant quote about tithing back in 1907. It was General Conference, it was April, and the church was still trying to get on its feet financially, at which time Joseph F. Smith said in General Conference that he expected to see the time when the church would have enough assets and enough money that they would no longer have to be requiring the membership to pay tithing. This is how that quote goes. We expect to see the day when we will not have to ask you, that's Joseph F. Smith addressing the membership of the church in conference, we will not have to ask you for one dollar of donation for any purpose except that which you volunteer to give of your own accord, because we will have tithes sufficient in the storehouse of the Lord to pay everything that is needful for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Period. End of quote from Joseph F. Smith. Now, this is a strange quote to juxtapose with the fact that we now know that the LDS Church has in excess of 150 billion, yes, that's a billion with a B, $150 billion worth of assets in the Enzyme Peak account. We also know that that account makes enough interest on an annual basis to more than pay for all of the expenses the church has and still have plenty left over to reinvest back into the Enzyme Peak account. So one would think that if Joseph F. Smith were correct, that the day would come when the church would not have to ask any of the members for one dollar of donation for any purpose, because we will have tithes sufficient in the storehouse of the Lord to pay everything that is needful for the advancement of the kingdom of God, you would think that if that time hasn't come before today, it certainly has arrived with a fanfare by now and a release of pigeons. And yet the church continues to insist that its members pay a full tithing. Even the poorest of the members must pay a tithing. Even if you don't know where you're going to find money to pay the electricity bill or to put food on the table for your kids, no, you pay tithing first. In some ways, it seems that the modern church leaders are bound and determined to prove Joseph F. Smith 
a false prophet. But the discovery really has little to do with that. The discovery has to do with the fact that it has only been about five years or so at the most, probably less than that, that I first became aware of this quote from Joseph F. Smith. And I found it quite remarkable that Joseph F. Smith went on the record in General Conference talking about a time that would come that he expected to see when members would not have to pay tithing. And all they would have to pay is what they volunteered to pay of their own accord. I had never heard that quote before, and because that was my experience, I was certainly able to understand why other people had never heard of that quote. And as to the church leaders, who currently do have enough in the bank to pay for all the expenses of the church, but still insist on paying tithing, it was easy for me to grant them the charity that they had not heard of this quote either. Now, a few weeks ago, I was doing research for a different podcast, and the subject had nothing to do with tithing or this quote from Joseph F. Smith. And while I was doing that research, I stumbled upon a talk by Boyd K. Packer from 1990 April General Conference in which Elder Packer uses this very same quote from Joseph F. Smith. The context is that in 1990, the church had just changed its financial arrangements such that members of the church now only had to pay, and I'll put that in quotes, only had to pay tithing and fast offerings. Prior to that, members not only had to pay tithing and fast offerings, but they had to pay additional assessments, usually for upkeep of their ward meeting house, which was assessed by the bishop on an annual basis for each member to determine their contributions to that fund. But by the time 1990 rolled around, the church changed its arrangement such that all tithes were sent to Salt Lake City and payments for the building upkeep, as well as all other financial responsibilities, was shifted to Salt Lake City. So it is in this context that Boyd K. Packer is talking about this new arrangement with the members of the audience in April General Conference 1990. And it is in this context that he quotes Joseph F. Smith. Play the tape. To many, the announcement came as a surprise, a very welcome surprise. And yet, if you were listening carefully, you should not have been too surprised. For years, the presidents of the church have talked about and prayed for the day when tithes and offerings would qualify members for full participation in the church. President Joseph F. Smith, as early as 1907, said, we may not be able to reach it right away, but expect to see the day when we will not have to ask for one dollar of donation for any purpose except that which you volunteer to give of your own accord, because we will have tithes sufficient in the storehouse of the Lord to pay everything that is needful for the advancement of the kingdom of God. When I heard this originally, I was stunned because not only was I wrong about church leaders today not being aware of this quote from Joseph F. Smith, I actually found a place in 1990, which is 32 years ago, but certainly still within living memory of all the current leadership. This quote from Joseph F. Smith was recited in general conference. So I began to think if they are aware of this quote and if Boyd K. Packer was aware of this quote enough to use it in general conference, then why are they not following what Joseph F. Smith plainly said? Why are they not saying that today we have enough to meet all needs of the church and therefore you're not required to pay tithing anymore? Any contributions you make are purely voluntary. Well, although I cannot say exactly why that is, it does appear that Boyd K. Packer thinks this quote from Joseph F. Smith supports 
their new position, new as of 1990, their new position of taking all tithing directly to Salt Lake and paying the different church building responsibilities out of it for every ward and stake throughout the church. So, whereas Joseph F. Smith seems to clearly state the time will come when you don't have to pay tithing, Boyd K. Packer, while aware of the quote, appears to be interpreting it that tithing is still required, it's just the church is going to pay for all of the building expenses out of the tithing. I don't think that's what Joseph F. Smith meant. I don't think that's the straightforward meaning of his words, but that is perhaps how it is that church leaders, including Boyd K. Packer of all people, can be aware of this quote and yet not appear to understand what it means. Whereas Joseph F. Smith appears to mean the time will come when you don't have to pay tithing, Boyd K. Packer is interpreting it as, no, the time will never come when you don't have to pay tithing. It's just that the tithing is great enough that we will use it to pay all of the church financial responsibilities. So that's the first thing that I discovered. The fact that this quote by Joseph F. Smith about tithing is more widely known than I had suspected, including being known among top leaders of the LDS church. The second thing that I discovered recently once more has to do with Joseph F. Smith, and it's a statement in section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants. I'll get to the Joseph F. Smith part here in a minute, but this will lead into it. Back in 1981, the church released its new edition of the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. Their new edition of the LDS Bible had come out two years previous to that in 1979, if memory serves. But as you know, I made a practice of studying the scriptures as closely as I possibly could and trying to pay attention to what it was that it was saying and what it was that it was not saying. And in section 132, a new introduction to that section was made in the 1981 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. Each of the sections have an italicized introduction summarizing what it is that the revelation is going to be about. And the question that I had dealt with the final line of the introduction to section 132. Let me read this introduction and wait for the final line so you can hear what it is that I had the question about. But this is the entirety of the introduction. Revelation given through Joseph Smith, the prophet, at Nauvoo, Illinois, recorded July 12, 1843, relating to the new and everlasting covenant, including the eternity of the marriage covenant and the principle of plural marriage. Now, listen to this last line. This is the line that I had a question about when I first read it and that I have continued to have for decades, at least until a couple of days ago. This is the line. Although the revelation was recorded in 1843, evidence indicates that some of the principles involved in this revelation were known by the prophet as early as 1831. Now, this section makes no attempt to explicate what on earth it's talking about as far as the principles of plural marriage being known to Joseph Smith as early as 1831. It is simply stated as a fact with no citation, no documentary support for this assertion. After that sentence, it says, see official declaration one. Now, I'm not sure why it says see official declaration one here, except for the fact that official declaration one, of course, was the manifesto from 1890 issued by President Wilford Woodruff. I read through the entirety of Official Declaration 1, which also includes several excerpts from speeches by President Wilford Woodruff relating to this issue. But I read through every word of that carefully. There is nothing in there that even hints at the idea that these principles were known by Joseph Smith as early as 1831. 
So when it says, see official declaration one, it's obvious that's not what it's talking about. That's not a citation to a source that supports this last sentence of the introduction to section 132. And I have wondered for four decades now, what on earth that could possibly mean. My initial reaction was that this must refer to Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible, which was going on about that time and talking about his getting to the part in the Bible where it mentions Abraham, and that this revelation was perhaps received as part of the Joseph Smith translation while Joseph Smith was translating those early chapters in Genesis that talk about the Abrahamic story. Now, the sentence in section 132 does not say that, but that's what I was led to presume. Since that time, I've talked with a number of people on occasion about what this sentence in the introduction could possibly mean. And I've received different responses. Some people I've talked to have thought that this line in the introduction to the Doctrine and Covenants has to do with a statement by W.W. Phelps in 1861. Now, in this statement, W.W. Phelps is recalling a revelation he says was received by Joseph Smith in Missouri 30 years earlier, specifically on Sunday morning, July 17, 1831, when several of the elders were gathered together, including himself. They didn't have pen, they didn't have paper, they didn't have ink, they didn't have anything to write down this revelation that Joseph Smith was receiving, but thankfully, W.W. Phelps remembered it, word for word apparently, after 30 years. And it appears that there is no other supporting evidence for the authenticity of W.W. Phelps' recollection in this regard. But the elders are now in Jackson County, Missouri. They're down by the borders of the Lamanites. And the pertinent part of this revelation, or at least what was recalled 30 years later as a revelation of Joseph Smith, is this line. It is my will, God speaking, of course, it is my will that in time ye should take unto you wives of the Lamanites and Nephites, that their posterity may become white, delightsome, and just. For even now, their females are more virtuous than the Gentiles. Now, in retrospect, there are many reasons to doubt the authenticity of this revelation or the accuracy of W.W. Phelps' memory in recalling this revelation. But that is not the point of tonight's podcast. The point is, is that there is a reference to a revelation about plural marriage in 1831. And some have proposed to me that they thought that maybe that's what was referred to in this last line from the introduction to section 132. Although the revelation was recorded in 1843, evidence indicates that some of the principles involved in this revelation were known by the prophet as early as 1831. And by the way, even though that is what the current introduction says, the same introduction, when it was originally published in 1981, read a little bit differently. It doesn't really change the meaning necessarily, but here's what it says. Remember, the introduction as it stands now says, evidence indicates that some of the principles involved in this revelation were known by the prophet as early as 1831. This is what that introduction said originally. Although the revelation was recorded in 1843, that part is identical, it is evident from the historical records that the doctrines and principles involved in this revelation had been known by the prophet since 1831. Once again, I'm going to read that, and then I'll read it as it stands today so you can see the difference, or at least hear the difference. It is evident from the historical records that the doctrines and principles involved in this revelation 
had been known by the prophet since 1831 that was changed at some point to read as it does today evidence indicates that some okay some of the principles not doctrines now doctrines has been removed that some of the principles involved in this revelation were known by the prophet as early as 1831 so actually it does change a lot of the meaning and probably was changed for very specific reasons. Nevertheless, I really didn't think that that was an adequate answer. I mean, this is something that most members of the church have never heard of. It's a very late recollection by William W. Phelps. Why would the church put in their scriptures, in an introduction to section 132, a reference to this statement by William W. Phelps, when really it doesn't sound like something that the church would feel the need to defend itself against by this statement in section 132. I can't say for sure, but it was never persuasive to me. Another thing that came up even more recently is when on Mormonism Live, Bill and I were talking about the tarring and feathering of Joseph Smith and the allegation about his being involved in sexual improprieties with Nancy Miranda Johnson at the time, that that could also be a reason why it is that this line was here in section 132 about Joseph Smith knowing these principles as early as 1831. That also didn't strike me as very likely, that the church is trying to put a defense to what Joseph Smith may or may not have been doing with Nancy Miranda Johnson in the introduction to section 132. Others have suggested that it has to do with trying to justify Joseph Smith's relation with Fanny Alger, but that was a number of years after 1831, so that didn't strike me as very likely either. So this is one of those questions where I have tried over time to come up with an answer to it, and yet none of the answers that either I have come up with or that other people have proposed to me seemed satisfactory. They just didn't seem to really give a good enough answer for me to consider it to be correct. That is until just a few days ago. Now I have to build up to this discovery of mine by starting with the idea that back in the 1980s it was rumored that these section headings to all the different chapters both in the Bible and in the Book of Mormon and in the Doctrine and Covenants were written by Bruce R. McConkie, the reigning scriptorian at the time. The first thing I can report to you with any degree of certitude is that this is not a rumor. Repeat, this was not a rumor. Bruce R. McConkie actually did write these introductions, and so Bruce R. McConkie wrote the introduction to section 132 as well as that last sentence in section 132. The reason we know this is because this comes from Robert J. Matthews, who was a BYU professor back in the 1970s and 80s and was very, very much involved in the study of the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. But Robert J. Matthews fielded this very question about who it was who was responsible for writing the introductions to the chapters in the New Scriptures, and this is what Robert J. Matthews said. I would be glad to tell you who did that, but first let me say one other thing. The Scriptures Publications Committee used many people for many things. It was somewhat agreed that it was a group project and that although individuals worked on certain things, it would not be noised abroad that this person did this thing and that person did another thing. So that is why you cannot find in any published works who did what. I think it would be no breach of etiquette or of confidentiality if I were to say with pleasure that Elder Bruce R. McConkie produced those headings. Now, I don't know anybody else who could do it so well. All of the headings are definitive and interpretive. They are a valuable part 
of the new edition of the scriptures. This quote from Robert J. Matthews can be found in the volume titled The Joseph Smith Translation, pages 300 and 301, edited by Mont S. Nyman. It's spelled M-O-N-T-E, but he pronounces it Mont S. Nyman and Robert L. Millett. So this is how we know that Bruce R. McConkie is the one responsible for writing the headings for all of the different chapters, which means it's Bruce R. McConkie who wrote the heading for section 132, which finally means it's Bruce R. McConkie who wrote that pesky last line in section 132's introduction. Now, if you'll take that piece of knowledge and put it on the shelf for a second, I want to talk about how it was I found what I believe is the answer to this question of what this last line in section 132's introduction means. And I found it while I was reading this new book called Method Infinite, Freemasonry and the Mormon Restoration by authors Cheryl L. Bruno, Joe Steve Swick III, and Nicholas S. Litursky. I am reading this book not only because I'm interested in the subject and it's an amazing book and long anticipated, but also because Cheryl Bruno is going to be on Mormonism Live next Wednesday. So I got the book. I'm making my way through it. I'm trying to study about Joseph Smith and Freemasonry. And lo and behold, what do I find but the answer to this question that's been plaguing me for 40 years? It was in a footnote. It's on page 177 of Method Infinite. It's in footnote 22. And here's what it says. Joseph F. Smith said that the women who entered plural marriage with the prophet Joseph Smith were shown to him and named to him as early as 1831. Now, this comes from the Deseret Evening News, February 18, 1882, page 2. It's in an article under the title, Correction. So I'm not sure exactly what it's correcting, but I do know that this is almost certainly the answer to the question. Once again, let me go on with that quote. Joseph F. Smith said that the women who entered plural marriage with the prophet Joseph Smith were shown to him and named to him as early as 1831, when the prophet Joseph Smith received the revelation in relation to the eternity of the marriage covenant, which includes plural marriage. In 1831, the Lord showed him those women who were to engage with him in the establishment of that principle in the church. And at that time, some of these women were named and given to him to become his wives when the time should come that this principle should be established. Once again, that's from Joseph F. Smith. So we certainly have that date of 1831, which is common between the two of them. And the reason I made such a big deal out of finding out who it was who wrote this line in the introduction to section 132 and identifying positively that person is Bruce R. McConkie is because of his relationship to Joseph F. Smith. I have studied the writings of Joseph F. Smith. I've studied the writings of Joseph F. Smith's son, Joseph Fielding Smith, and I've also studied the writings of Joseph Fielding Smith's son-in-law, Bruce R. McConkie. And it is clear that pretty much everything that Joseph F. Smith said was repeated by his son, Joseph Fielding Smith. And pretty much everything Joseph Fielding Smith said was repeated by his son-in-law, Bruce R. McConkie. So what I'm trying to suggest here is that Bruce R. McConkie put a great deal of weight on anything written by his father-in-law and would also have put a great deal of weight of everything written by the father of his father-in-law, the sixth president of the church, Joseph F. Smith. So what I am suggesting, and what I believe is a satisfactory answer to this difficult question 
that has vexed me for 40 years is that Bruce R. McConkie would have had access to this statement by Joseph F. Smith from the Deseret Evening News in 1882, that he would have put a great deal of weight on it because it is from Joseph F. Smith, even more weight on it perhaps than any other early church leader, with the possible exception of Joseph Smith. And for whatever reason, he wanted to make a passing reference to it in the introduction to section 132. And once I read this quote from Joseph F. Smith, it became clear to me as well as to why it was that Bruce R. McConkie did not give a specific reference to it in the introduction to section 132. Because it's one thing to say, in a general sense, that some of these principles were known by the prophet as early as 1831. And actually what Bruce R. McConkie wrote was not that some of the principles were known to him. It was that the doctrines and principles involved in this revelation had been known by the prophet since 1831. So there's no limitation of some on it. That was changed by somebody since Bruce R. McConkie wrote the original. But as I say, it is clearer to me why this general statement would be made and not a specific reference because if a specific reference were given, then one would find the quote from Joseph F. Smith, which I'm going to read once again because it seems highly problematic this quote from Joseph F. Smith. I do not understand how this would work with Joseph Smith himself in 1831 receiving names and being shown women that he would marry. I mean, there really weren't that many around at the time, at least not compared to the late 1830s or the 1840s in Nauvoo when Joseph Smith kicked plural marriage into high gear. Here is what Joseph F. Smith said. Listen carefully again. That the women who entered plural marriage with the prophet Joseph Smith were shown to him and named to him as early as 1831. Is he talking about a visionary experience or something? He doesn't make it clear. He goes on, when the prophet Joseph Smith received the revelation in relation to the eternity of the marriage covenant, i.e. section 132, which includes plural marriage, in 1831, the Lord showed him those women who were to engage with him in the establishment of that principle in the church. And at that time, some of these women were named and given to him to become his wives when the time should come that this principle should be established. Now, once again, we have to note that Joseph F. Smith would have no personal knowledge of this. He was a little kid back in Nauvoo when his dad, Hiram, and his uncle, Joseph Smith, were killed on June 27, 1844, at the hands of an angry mob in Carthage, Illinois. So he appears to have gotten this from some other location, but obviously other than personal knowledge. So as I say, it is a strange quote. It's one I had never heard of before. It's one I likely never would have encountered except for this wonderful book, Method Infinite. And I can just thank heaven that every now and again, I actually do read the footnotes. Now I'm going to go off on a brief tangent regarding Bruce R. McConkie, because if Bruce R. McConkie actually wrote this line and knew where it was coming from, but was less than clear about his source, this is a tactic that back when I was in law school in the late 1980s at the University of Texas at Austin School of Law, certain law professors would engage in the same tactic, and we usually called it hiding the ball. There were some professors who were absolutely wonderful about teaching about the law in a way that was clear and easy to grasp, or at least easier than other professors, because there were other professors who knew all the answers and tried to hide the ball, hide the answer from the students so that the students could then stumble about, run into walls, give incorrect answers, and do other things apparently for the entertainment of the professor. So I wondered if Elder Bruce R. McConkie was playing hide the ball with this sentence from the section 132 introduction 
introduction. Is there any other example of Bruce R. McConkie playing a similar game? And the example that immediately came to my mind was from his famous address called The Seven Deadly Heresies. This was a BYU speech given on June 1st, 1980. And in that speech, heresy number one was this. There are those who say that God is progressing in knowledge and is learning new truths. Then Bruce R. McConkie went on, and as part of dismantling this heresy in his opinion, this heresy, number one, he said the following. Heresy number one. There are those who say that God is progressing in knowledge and is learning new truth. This is false, utterly, totally, and completely. There is not one sliver of truth in it. It grows out of a wholly twisted and incorrect view of the King Follett sermon and of what is meant by eternal progression. Why anyone should suppose that an infinite and eternal being who has presided in our universe for almost 2,555,000,000 years, who made the sidereal heavens whose creations are more numerous than the particles of the earth, and who is aware of the fall of every sparrow. Why anyone would suppose that such a being has more to learn and new truths to discover in the laboratories of eternity is totally beyond comprehension. Now, when I first heard this idea, that God had presided in our universe for almost 2,555,000,000 years, I was astonished. Bruce R. McConkie gave no reference to this information. I had no idea what he was talking about. I was just back from my mission the first time I heard this. Where on earth was Bruce R. McConkie getting the somewhat specific number 2,555,000,000 years? And I and the other members that I talked to about this were of the same impression that Bruce R. McConkie must have received this by some kind of independent revelation specifically to him. So as I say, Bruce R. McConkie gave no reference for this statement. He's once again playing hide the ball. The real reference, of course, is to the Abraham Egyptian papers and the translation project involving the papyrus, which ultimately yielded the book of Abraham. Now, technically, it doesn't involve the papyrus itself, but it does involve a statement made about the papyrus. And the statement made about the papyrus was made by, once again, William W. Phelps. William W. Phelps wrote a letter to William Smith in which he described part of the translation process that Joseph Smith was engaged in with the papyrus. And these are the words of the letter by William W. Phelps to William Smith that gave rise to this idea. Well now, Brother William, when the house of Israel begin to come into the glorious mysteries of the kingdom, and yes, begin is how it is written, so I will use the original syntax and spelling and grammar. Well now, Brother William, When the house of Israel begin to come into the glorious mysteries of the kingdom and find that Jesus Christ, whose goings forth, as the prophet said, have been from of old, from eternity. And here's the $64 line, or should I say the $2,555,000,000 line. And that eternity, agreeably to the records found in the catacombs of Egypt, has been going on in this system almost 2,555 millions of years. So 2,555 million does become 2,555 million. 
Now, shortly thereafter, the church's official periodical, The Times and Seasons, published William W. Phelps' statement with one small editorial addition. This is from Times and Seasons, Volume 5, Number 24, dated the first day of January, 1844, page 758. And here is how it was published there. Eternity, agreeably to the records found in the catacombs of Egypt, has been going on in this system, parenthesis, not the world, in parenthesis almost 2,555 millions of years. That's how it was published in the Times and Seasons. There was that parenthetical insertion added because it was clear that the editor did not want anybody to believe that this large number applied to the world itself, and therefore this system of things must apply to something other than the world. Now, this information itself seemed revelatory in some way. Where is it that they're coming up with this number of 2,555,000,000 millions of years. Well, it was only a few years ago that I stumbled upon the answer to this. And the answer is that 2,555,000,000 is a number that was not arrived at by revelation. It was a number that was arrived at by mathematics. And it all comes from the idea, first off, two ideas. The idea that the world is 7,000 years old, as we read about in section 77 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So we understand that the belief was held that the world was only 7,000 years old. And this was a common belief amongst Christianity. It's a common belief today among certain fundamentalist sects of Christianity. So that part is not surprising. The next part that goes along with it, though, is the statement from Peter that one day unto the Lord is equal to a thousand years to us. Now, whereas that may have been meant metaphorically by Peter or whoever wrote that particular epistle in the New Testament, it was treated quite literally by some members of the early LDS church. And in fact, that very statement was incorporated into the book of Abraham under the explanations for facsimile number two, the hypocephalus. And under the explanation for figure one in the hypocephalus, it says this, one day in Kolob is equal to a thousand years according to the measurement of this earth. So having established these two principles or these two concepts, one that the earth is 7,000 years old and two that one day unto the Lord is a thousand years unto us, we're ready to do the math necessary to arrive at this figure of 2,555,000,000. And it's actually pretty simple, although you may need to get out your calculator, which I'm going to do right now just to double check my work. If one day to us is a thousand years to the Lord, and there are 365 days in the year, then let's do the math and see what 365 days are to the Lord. Oh, it's 365,000. That part was easy. But now, if we take the 365,000, which is 365,000 years, which is what one year to the Lord is, to us. One year to the Lord is 365,000 years to us. So if we know that correlation, then we're ready to ask the question, what is 7,000 years to the Lord in terms of earth measurement? And if we take the 365,000 and we multiply it by 7,000, which is the 7,000 years that the earth has been in existence, guess what we get? If you guessed 2,555,000,000 years, you're correct. So this 2,555,000,000,000 years is not a random figure. It's taking the 7,000 years of the Earth's temporal existence, which must have been according to the Lord's time because the time of the Earth had not been appointed to it yet. 
And so 7,000 years, according to the Lord's reckoning, would end up becoming 2,555,000,000 years when converted over to our method of calculating time while living on this earth. The thing that's interesting is that this all has to do with the earth. Remember, the 7,000 years is how long the earth has been in existence. And then this calculation is done to figure out how long that would be if it's 7,000 years to the Lord, how long it is to us. So it all has to do with the length of existence of the earth. And yet, the editor of the Times and Seasons, who published this statement from the letter of William W. Phelps, wanted to make sure that regardless of what this is referring to, it is not the world. Remember, that's the editorial insertion, not the world. So whatever you make of that, that's where the figure comes from. That's where Bruce R. McConkie got it from. And that's where Bruce R. McConkie claimed it almost as his own without giving any reference to William W. Phelps or the source of this statement when he gave his talk, The Seven Deadly Heresies. Now, in Bruce R. McConkie's defense, I do have to say that in his book, The Mortal Messiah, Volume 1, he once again references this number, but there he does give in a footnote a reference to where it came from. So he is playing hide the ball when he's giving the talk. Maybe he thought that would be too much of a tangent from the message he was trying to get across. But again, why did he have to bring it up in the first place? It smacks of playing hide the ball. It smacks of, I have this information. I'm not going to tell you where I got it from, but I'm just going to let you think that I came up with it myself so that I will sound more intelligent than perhaps I really am. And the reason I bring it up is because if, as it seems, Bruce R. McConkie is playing hide the ball with his statement in the introduction to section 132, it wouldn't be the first time that he is engaged in such a tactic. Okay, enough of Joseph F. Smith and Bruce R. McConkie and William W. Phelps for now. Now we get to discovery number three, and this has to do with Russell M. Nelson, the current president of the church. I am recording this at the end of September 2022. Russell Nelson has just turned 98 years old, and this story has to do with a very strange thing involving the birth of his last child, which was his son, Russell M. Nelson Jr. At least, that's the name that he came to be given, and there's a story involving this name, and a story involving the fact that Russell M. Nelson was very, very glad to finally have a son, because all he'd had before this were daughters. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't love his daughters, but it's very clear from the way he tells a story regarding his son that he had been looking forward to having a son for a long time and was glad that God had finally given him a son. And those of you who are members of the LDS Church will understand that boys can do many things that girls cannot do, include having the priesthood and rising in the levels of priesthood leadership in the LDS Church, even as Russell M. Nelson had done at the time his son was born, and as he has certainly done since that time. President Nelson wrote about this experience regarding the birth of his son in his biography titled From Heart to Heart, which is technically an autobiography since he wrote it himself and it was published in 1979. A listener to the show was kind enough to send me their copy of this hardback edition of Russell Marion Nelson's autobiography. And not too long ago, an apparent discrepancy was found in this autobiography relating to the story of the birth of Russell M. Nelson's son. And to give credit where credit is due, this is not a discovery that I made. It is a discovery that was made by a poster at the Discuss Mormonism message board. I've mentioned that board before. There are some very, very smart people who post there, and I have learned an awful lot over the years that I have been a member there. 
So let's go to the timeline for this because the timeline is going to be very important. There are really only a couple of dates that you need to keep in mind. The first is that their son was born on March 21st, 1972. This is from pages 348 and 349 of the autobiography under highlights of 1972. March 21st, Russell Marion Nelson Jr. was born by cesarean section at 1.13 p.m. He weighed 12 pounds and was 23 inches long. So that's the first date of importance, March 21st of 1972. The second date of importance is two months prior to that, January 22nd, 1972, because it is in January 22nd of that year that President Nelson claims to have had a dream of some sort. Under the highlights of 1972, he abbreviates this experience as January 22nd, Sun Valley, Idaho. I had the dream that our baby to be born was the long-awaited son and that his name was to be Russell Marion Nelson Jr. Now that is an abbreviated account because it's under highlights of 1972. If we go to page 261, there is an entire chapter devoted to his son, Russell. This is chapter 35. In the book, he devotes a separate chapter to each of his children, including the nine daughters, prior to the chapter on Russell. But this is the detailed story about Russell and the detailed story about this dream experience, this miraculous experience that President Nelson had in January of 1972. On January 22, 1972, I was in Sun Valley, Idaho, speaking at a meeting of the Idaho Heart Association. I was given a very lovely room in the Sun Valley Lodge, a fire in the fireplace, and all that went with it. All alone in that room, I retired for the evening. Okay, now here comes the miracle. In the middle of the night, I was awakened with a very real experience. Now, this is Unusual because in the highlight section where he synopsizes this experience, he refers to it as a dream. But here in the more detailed discussion of it in chapter 35 on page 261, he describes it in a way that sounds like much more than a dream. He says again, in the middle of the night, I was awakened with a very real experience. I cannot remember who gave the message. That is of no importance. But I do remember as surely as I live that it was announced to me that this time Danzel's pregnancy was with the son. Furthermore, it was impressed upon my mind that his name should be Russell Marion Nelson Jr. So that's his experience and notice that he describes it in such a way as to ensure that we don't understand it to have been simply a dream. He says he was awakened in the middle of the night. He also intimates that there was a personage who appeared to him in his room at the Sun Valley Lodge. He doesn't remember who it was, strangely enough, and then he assures us that that is of no importance. Remember, he said, I cannot remember who gave the message. That is of no importance. Well, if somebody woke me up in the middle of the night at Sun Lodge or anywhere else and I knew who it was, I wouldn't be forgetting it anytime soon. In this way, President Nelson can intimate an angelic visitation of some sort without having to commit himself to identifying who it was who actually showed up. But whoever it was who showed up to give this message to President Nelson, it was obviously of paramount importance that this message be communicated to President Nelson. Not only that, the child that was on the verge of being born at that time would be a son, but also the express statement that his name should be Russell Marion Nelson Jr. 
Of course, this story harks back to the story of John the Baptist and how his name was given by an angelic minister to his father and that his name should be called John, which his father did go ahead and call him John. And a similar story, of course, happens with Jesus himself. But apparently, Russell M. Nelson did not really like the name that this angelic minister, or whoever it was, told him his son should be called. President Nelson goes on in his autobiography, bottom of page 261. The following morning, I called Danzel long distance and told her of the experience. She was moved by it, for she knew that with each of the nine children prior to this, the discussion of an alternative name, should it have been a boy, had never included Russell Marion Nelson Jr. He explains, we had a bit of prejudice against having a young man called Jr., but we knew this had been an experience that deserved considerable attention, and so we planned accordingly. So once again, this dream is related to have happened on January 22, 1972, and the son was born two months later on March 21st of 1972. Now speaking personally, if I had had some kind of visitor during the night or some kind of undeniable spiritual experience that was very real, to use President Nelson's words, telling me not only that the child that was going to be born was the long-awaited son, but also telling me what the name of that child should be, I probably wouldn't need a lot of confirmation of that from somebody else. However, Russell M. Nelson does want confirmation, and he wants to get it from Spencer W. Kimball. Of course, in 1972, Spencer Kimball is not the president of the church yet. He will become such the following year in 1973 upon the death of Harold B. Lee, who was then the president of the church. And Russell Nelson does seek that confirmation of the correctness of this name from Spencer Kimball, but he does it after the heart surgery that Russell Nelson performed on Spencer Kimball in April of 1972. Here's the story regarding that surgery, and I'm not going to read all of the story. I'm just going to read the part that sets the stage for what it is I'm talking about today, beginning at the bottom of page 163 now. And the context is that President Kimball needs surgery, but he's an old man. He's not up for it. He feels dragged down by it, and he's considering just going ahead and shuffling off this mortal coil without going through the rigors of open-heart surgery at his advanced age. There's a meeting being held about this with top church leaders, and also Russell M. Nelson, who though not an apostle at this time, nevertheless as the heart surgeon is part of this meeting. Picking it up in the middle of the meeting now, and at the bottom of page 163 of Heart to Heart, then a weary President Kimball said, I'm an old man and ready to die. It is well for a younger man to come to the quorum and do the work I can no longer do. At that point, President Harold B. Lee, speaking for the first presidency, rose to his feet, pounded his fist to the desk and said, Spencer, you have been called. You are not to die. You are to do everything that you need to do in order to take care for yourself and continue to live. President Kimball responded, Then I will have the operation performed. Sister Kimball who was also present, wept. When he spoke those words, my heart sank, for the weight of this decision seemed suddenly to pass to me. But this was a remarkable event. This momentous decision, which shaped the history of the church, was not based on medical recommendation. It was based strictly on the desire of an apostle of the Lord to be obedient to the counsel of his file leaders in the church. It was based on the inspired direction of the first presidency of the church in answer to his request. 
The meeting concluded with a brief discussion on the best timing for the operation. Now, the timing of the operation is going to be critical here. So let's pay attention now if we haven't been up to this point. For this was now March of 1972 when they had this meeting. I said, let's postpone the operation until general conference is over. The decision was made to have the operation done in the second week of April. Now, this operation is going to end up being done on April 12th of 1972. He goes on, President Kimball attended only one of the seven sessions of general conference in April of 1972. His breathlessness and inability to exert himself because of his congestive heart failure forced him to listen to the other sessions from his bed. On the eve of the operation, April 11th, 1972, remember the operation will be on the 12th, I received a blessing at my request from the First Presidency under the hands of President Harold B. Lee and President Nathan Eldon Tanner. They blessed me that the operation would be performed without error, that all would go well, and that I need not fear for my own inadequacies, for I had been raised up by the Lord to perform this operation. Okay, no pressure. Finally, we get to the day of the operation. On April 12, 1972, the operation was performed. As the skin incision was made, my resident exclaimed, He doesn't bleed! Exclamation point. From that very first maneuver until the last one, everything went as planned. And then he talks about how amazing this operation was, which he attributes, of course, to the blessing he received from Harold B. Lee. I'm not exactly sure what to make of this idea that Russell Nelson makes an incision in the skin of Spencer Kimball, but he doesn't bleed. That seems remarkable. And yet, nothing more is said about it than the fact that Russell Nelson's resident exclaimed he doesn't bleed. I don't know if this is supposed to mean that a miracle was occurring or that Spencer Kimball was a zombie of some sort. Nevertheless, no further details are supplied. Russell Nelson goes on on page 165, but even more special than that, i.e. the operation going so well, but even more special than that was the overpowering feeling that came upon me as we shocked his heart and it resumed its beating immediately with power and vigor. The spirit told me that I had just operated upon a man who would become president of the church. So it appears Russell Nelson has no lack of divine messages from heaven regarding different aspects of his life and of the church administration. Finally, we get to the part that is of particular interest to us here. We became, that's we, Russell Nelson and Spencer Kimball, we became very close during that period of convalescence. So, of course, there's a period of convalescence after open heart surgery. But perforce, that period would have to occur after the surgery itself, which surgery occurred on April 12th of 1972. So, during the period of convalescence is after April 12th. Going on, I counseled with him regarding the name that should be chosen. Should he be called Russell Marion Nelson Jr. or Russell Marion Nelson the second. So this appears to be the big difficulty that Russell Nelson has with naming his son. He's fine with naming him Russell Marion Nelson II, but he's not too keen on Russell Marion Nelson Jr. As he explained earlier, that he and Danzel never liked the idea of a son or a boy being called Jr. So Russell Nelson wants to talk to the convalescing Spencer Kimball about this and get his divine imprimatur of approval, which he receives. Should he be called Russell Marion Nelson Jr. or Russell Marion Nelson II? President Kimball indicated that it should be Russell Marion Nelson Jr. This reaffirmed the message 
that I had received in January of 1972, three months prior to his birth. Now, technically, it's two months prior to his birth because Russell Nelson says he received this revelation in Sun Valley, Idaho on January 22nd of 1972, and his son was born on March 21st of 1972. So if I'm doing my math, January, February, March, yeah, that's two months. It's actually one day shy of two months. And yet, for whatever reason, Russell Nelson wants to increase that amount to three months prior to his birth, presumably to make the story more miraculous. It's one thing to know the gender of your child two months before that child is born. It's another thing and more impressive to know the gender of that child three months before the child is born. But that's really neither here nor there. The main point of it is this, that Russell Nelson says he received the revelation about what his son's name should be called January 22nd, 1972, the son is born March 21st, 1972, and sometime in April, after the surgery on Spencer Kimball, which occurred on April 12th, 1972, and while Spencer Kimball was convalescing from the operation, Russell Nelson approaches him to get confirmation that this is the correct name that his son should be called. And Russell Nelson tells this story in such a way as to suggest that he has not made a final decision as to what the name of his son should be. Should it be Junior or the Second? He wants confirmation from Spencer Kimball. He gets that confirmation. So presumably, it would be after that point that Russell Nelson made the decision to name his son Russell Marion Nelson Jr. So this would have been around a month after the boy was born, and one wonders what name was on his birth certificate if his parents had not decided yet what his name should be. What makes it even stranger is that there is a big event that the church has every April that came in between the birth of his son on March 21st, 1972, and his operation on Spencer Kimball, April 12th, 1972. And that big event has already been referenced in the pages of this biography that I just read. And that big event is, of course, April General Conference. And the strange thing about this general conference is that on April 8th, 1972, Elder S. Dilworth Young gave a talk in general conference. He refers to Russell M. Nelson's son, and it's an entire talk that's built upon this idea that Russell M. Nelson has just had a son, and that he's going to be sure to raise him in a way that checks off all the boxes of raising a son within the LDS church and hitting all the major milestones, reading the scriptures, praying together, attending church meetings, getting the priesthood, going on a mission. You get the idea. That's what the whole talk is about. But it's framed around the idea that Russell M. Nelson will be sure to raise his son in this way. The thing that's funny about this talk is that not once, but twice, on April 8, 1972, in General Conference, Elder S. Dilworth Young, while giving this talk, mentions the name of Russell Nelson's son. And believe it or not, each time he mentions his name, it is Russell Marion Nelson Jr. Let's play the tape on that, shall we, so you can hear what I'm talking about. In my mind's eye, I see Russell Nelson Jr., newly arrived from his home in heaven and staring up into the eyes of his father as though to say to him, as Joseph Smith said to Newell K. Whitney, you prayed me here, now what do you want of me? And the second clip is like unto the first. Now he is to prove that he can live in a body and control its earthy tendencies and temptations as he did as a spirit before his arrival here in mortality. 
as with Russell Nelson Jr., so it is with all boys and girls too. So there you hear Elder S. Dilworth Young giving the name publicly and to the world of Russell Nelson's new son as Russell Marion Nelson Jr. One would presume that before Elder S. Dilworth Young did that, he had permission from Russell Nelson to tell the story, and one would also presume that the name Dilworth Young used in his conference for the son was also given to him by the father. In other words, Russell Nelson told Dilworth Young that his son's name was Russell Marion Nelson Jr., and Russell Nelson was confident enough that that was going to be the boy's name to allow a general authority to use it in general conference. Now, this is not the story of the century, I admit, and I probably would have just passed it over without remark except for the fact that Russell Nelson seems to have an established track record of embellishing mundane stories with miraculous elements in order to make the experiences look more fantastic than they actually were. I've gone over several of those in prior podcasts. Of course, we have the infamous airplane flight to death that Bill Reel and I talked about on Mormonism Live a few months ago. There is also the incident at Mozambique, which I've talked about on a prior podcast. And additionally, there's the mystery of the lady in the hat, which I've also talked about previously. And I'm not going to go into detail on those here. I've already talked about those elsewhere. But let's just say that even though this is not necessarily as big an example of overlaying everyday events with a patina of the miraculous as those other stories, it still fits into the pattern that we have seen time and time again used by Russell Nelson. So now that I've explained this to you, let me give the synopsis. January 22nd, 1972. All these dates are in 1972. January 22nd, Russell Nelson says he has a revelation from some personage, apparently, that his son is to be called Russell Marion Nelson Jr. He doesn't really like that name. And so he assures us at a different point in his biography that during Spencer Kimball's convalescence after the surgery that was performed on his heart on April 12th of 1972, Russell Nelson counseled with Spencer Kimball regarding the name that should be chosen. See, the way he phrases it is, it hasn't already been decided upon yet. The name that should be chosen, should it be the second or should it be junior? And President Kimball says it should be junior. And that this reaffirmed the message that I had received in January of 1972, three months prior to his birth. We've read that before. So the question that I would have for President Nelson today, and I think it's a legitimate question to ask, is if you had not really decided on your son's name being Russell Marion Nelson Jr. until after you had talked to Spencer Kimball sometime after April 12th of 1972, why is it that S. Dilworth Young on April 8th, 1972, is announcing to the world with your permission, that your son's name was Russell Marion Nelson Jr. That's the question that I have. Now, finally, for the fourth discovery that I want to talk about before I close out this podcast, this one has to do with Wilford Woodruff, but it also has to do with John Steinbeck. So let me tell you a little bit about what Wilford Woodruff has to do with John Steinbeck. Wilfred Woodruff, of course, was an apostle in the church from the early days. He went on to become the fourth president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But there's a special miracle story that he tells that has obtained some degree of currency in the LDS church. I've heard of it before. I expect you have probably heard of it before, too. This is how it goes. This is from the Millennial Star 
volume 53, pages 642 through 643. But the reference that I'm using is couched in an article from the Church News, July 14, 2001, under the title, Withstanding Life's Storms. And this is how the article leads into the story by President Woodruff. Our safety in the storm lies in heeding the still small voice in the whirlwind that swirls around us. An example of such heeding is found in the experience of President Wilfred Woodruff, who, while traveling in New England on assignment by Brigham Young, drove his carriage into the yard of a home. Orson Hyde drove a wagon by the side of his carriage. President Woodruff went to bed in the carriage, where also slept his wife and children. The Spirit spoke to him twice first telling him to move the carriage and then to move his animals from under an oak tree. He did so. Now it segues to the story as told in first person by Wilford Woodruff. Quote, in 30 minutes, so this would be 30 minutes after he moved his carriage and his animals from under the oak tree, presumably, in 30 minutes, a whirlwind came up and broke that oak tree off within two feet from the ground. It swept over three or four fences and fell square in that dooryard near Brother Orson Hyde's wagon and right where mine had stood. What would have been the consequences if I had not listened to that spirit? Why, myself and wife and children, doubtless, would have been killed. That was the still small voice to me. No earthquake, no thunder, no lightning, but the still small voice of the Spirit of God. It saved my life. It was the Spirit of Revelation to me, period, end of quote from Wilfred Woodruff. Now, just reading that account on its face, I have a few questions, and they mostly have to do with Brother Orson Hyde and his wagon that was parked right next to Wilfred Woodruff's wagon in this dooryard. According to the story, Wilfred Woodruff receives not one but two communications from God that night. The first is to move his carriage with his wife and children in it out of that dooryard, and the second is to take his animals and move them out of that dooryard. Now, I understand that Wilfred Woodruff doesn't know why he's getting these communications from heaven to move his carriage and his animals away from this tree, but one might reasonably suppose he would figure out that this was in order to be safe in some way. Otherwise, why on earth would he be told to move away from this tree? Regardless of what Wilfred Woodruff thought the meaning behind these communications was, it is obvious he did not tell Orson Hyde about them. We might presume that if Wilfred Woodruff gets a revelation and a prompting to move his carriage away from a tree and then gets another prompting to move his animals away from that tree, he might just wake up Orson Hyde and say, Hey Orson, God won't let me get to sleep because he's busy telling me to get my carriage and my animals away from this tree. And so, hey, I just thought I'd let you know so you might want to do something similar. But that apparently does not happen. Instead, Wilfred Woodruff gets his stuff out of there, and he says that when the oak tree got knocked over by the whirlwind, it fell square in that dooryard near Brother Orson Hyde's wagon, and right where mine had stood. So on the face of it, this seems a little bit confusing to me. But what is interesting to me is how this story relates to a book by John Steinbeck that I read not that long ago. Now, John Steinbeck is, of course, famous for writing many, many books. The Grapes of Wrath, East of Eden are his main novels. And then there's a host of short stories that he's very famous for having written, such as The Pearl, The Red Pony, Of Mice and Men, Cannery Row, and Tortilla Flat. And I've read all of those and have quite the love affair going with John Steinbeck. 
It was with this background that I got another book by John Steinbeck titled Travels with Charlie in Search of America. It's a somewhat unwieldy title. So let me explain it to you for just a second. First off, this is not a novel. It's not a fictional account. This is sort of a log of the journey that John Steinbeck took around America with his standard size poodle. In other words, it's not a toy poodle. This is a regular big dog. It's a poodle. And the poodle's name is Charlie. So that's why it's called Travels with Charlie in Search of America. He takes this journey around 1960, the year I was born. So it was very interesting to me to read this. I found that as I opened it up and began reading the pages, that I was making a reacquaintance with an old friend in John Steinbeck. And what he's driving around the country with his dog, Charlie, is basically a pickup truck with a very small camper on the back. And that's where he and Charlie spend the night. Now, there's a particular incident in this book that I want to share with you. Because when I read it, it reminded me immediately of this story by Wilford Woodruff. And the thing that's interesting about it to me is that when I was an observant Latter-day Saint, this story by Wilford Woodruff, I took at face value and it seemed quite miraculous. But one of the reasons it seemed miraculous to me was because I was unaware of other people making similar claims about similar miracles in various other places throughout history. One of the ways we see this today is when people say they get a feeling that they shouldn't go on a particular plane, they don't go on the plane even though they have the ticket, and the plane crashes and everybody on board is killed. So that's this kind of idea of a story. Today, you get a message from God that prevents you from going somewhere on a plane or some other method of transportation that has a horrible accident, and therefore it serves as some sort of vindication or proof, if you will, that the communication you received was legitimate. Now, obviously, God was so busy, he could only give that communication to one person who was scheduled to be on the plane and not to everybody. God forbid to the pilot or somebody in charge who could cancel the flight altogether and save all the passengers. No, God just gives this one message to one person and they are the lucky ones. But what happens in this book, Travels with Charlie in Search of America, is that John Steinbeck has now reached North Dakota in his journeys and he's parking there by a small lake off the highway in the middle of the night. He has never been there before. There is nobody else around and a huge windstorm comes up. And you'll hear what happens, but what's fascinating to me is that this idea of receiving promptings to move someplace else during a windstorm so as to be saved from a falling tree is so common, at least in John Steinbeck's experience, that he makes a joke out of it. So let me read this story to you now. This is beginning on page 152 of my edition of Travels with Charlie in Search of America. The night was loaded with omens. The grieving sky turned the little water, that's the small lake they were parked next to, the grieving sky turned the little water to a dangerous metal, and then the wind got up. Not the gusty, rabbity wind of the sea coasts, I know, but a great bursting sweep of wind with nothing to inhibit it for a thousand miles in any direction. There are reference to how flat and barren the countryside was in North Dakota. Because it was a wind strange to me, and therefore mysterious, it set up mysterious responses in me. In terms of reason, it was strange only because I found it so. But a goodly part of our experience, which we find inexplicable, must be like that. To my certain knowledge, many people conceal experiences for fear of ridicule. 
How many people have seen or heard or felt something which so outraged their sense of what should be that the whole thing was brushed quickly away like dirt under a rug? For myself, I try to keep the line open even for things I can't understand or explain, but it is difficult in this frightened time. At this moment in North Dakota, I had a reluctance to drive on that amounted to fear. At the same time, Charlie, remember that's his dog, at the same time, Charlie wanted to go. In fact, made such a commotion about going that I tried to reason with him. So now this is John Steinbeck trying to reason with his dog. Listen to me, dog. I have a strong impulse to stay, amounting to celestial command. If I should overcome it and go, and a great snow should close in on us, I would recognize it as a warning disregarded. If we stay and a big snow should come, I would be certain I had a pipeline to prophecy. Doesn't this sound like what's happening with Wilfred Woodruff? Charlie sneezed and paced restlessly. All right, mon cur, let's take your side of it. He goes on trying to reason with his dog. You want to go on. Suppose we do. And in the night, a tree should crash down right where we are presently standing. It would be you who have the attention of the gods. And there is always that chance. I could tell you many stories about faithful animals who save their masters. But I think you, Charlie, I think you are just bored. And I'm not going to flatter you. Charlie leveled at me his most cynical eye. I think he is neither a romantic nor a mystic. John Steinbeck goes on talking to Charlie. I know what you mean. If we go and no tree crashes down or stay and no snow falls, what then? I'll tell you what then. We forget the whole episode and the field of prophecy is in no way injured. So in the vast majority of situations like this, no tree falls and no snow falls either. In other words, regardless of the choice they made to stay or to go, no disaster would have been avoided either way. And so we just forget the whole thing and the field of prophecy is in no way injured. It's not injured because you never count the misses or the things that don't happen in the field of prophecy. It's only the things that do happen, such as described in Wilford Woodruff's story, that get ascribed to prophecy. John Steinbeck goes on talking to his dog. I vote to stay. You vote to to go, but being nearer the pinnacle of creation than you, and also president, I cast the deciding vote. And now John Steinbeck goes on to describe what actually happened that night. We stayed, and it didn't snow, and no tree fell. So naturally, we forgot the whole thing, and are wide open for more mystic feelings when they come. And in the early morning, swept clean of clouds, and telescopically clear, we crunched around on the thick white ground cover of frost and got underway. So that is the end of that part of the story. And that is why it made me think of Wilfred Woodruff's story about receiving an impression to move his carriage out from under a big oak tree right before a huge whirlwind showed up and knocked it flat where his carriage had been. Even accepting the story at face value, this is one of those instances where a hit is focused on and declared to be prophecy, and all the times that we receive impressions to do one thing or another, and no evil befalls, and nothing bad would have happened regardless of what choice we made, those get swept under the rug and forgotten about. 
It is a classic example of the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, which is a logical fallacy that is committed when differences in data are ignored, but similarities are overemphasized. Looked at another way, if you shoot at a target and you hit the target only once out of every hundred times you shoot at it, so one hit and 99 misses, that's not very impressive. You are no sharpshooter if you can only hit the target once out of a hundred shots. But if you ignore the 99 times you miss it and emphasize only the one time out of a hundred that it does hit the target, all of a sudden you've gone from being a really, really bad shot to being a sharpshooter, a Texas sharpshooter, in fact. So I thought that was a wonderful story standing on its own, but also it helped to illustrate to me the fact that these kinds of occurrences are so broadly known that John Steinbeck is aware of them and even uses them in order to tell a humorous story about himself and his dog Charlie in the middle of a huge windstorm out in the dark night of North Dakota in 1960. Well, those are the four discoveries that I have made recently. The two with Joseph F. Smith, the one with Russell Nelson and his son, Junior, and also finally with Wilfred Woodruff and John Steinbeck. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's program. If you do like what you hear at Radio Free Mormon, please take the time to go to RadioFreeMormon.org right now and make a monthly contribution. $5 a month is plenty. $10 a month is great. Whatever you can afford. Your contributions will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. (laughs) 